Uh, we continue this morning uh, in our study of the book of Habakkuk. Uh, if you're visiting with us, this is our, our third week in a four-week study of the book of Habakkuk. And I'm Marty Cates. I'm the associate pastor. Our senior pastor, Harry Long, is away this week. Um, he is, uh, I think, finishing up a, a pastor's retreat down in Florida that he's been going to for years. And it's a great encouragement to him uh, as he uh, begins to the clock, the countdown to his retirement. Um, so I'm, I'm here this week and I'll be in the pulpit again next week, but then Harry will be back. So you have to deal with me uh, one more week after this. We are in Habakkuk chapter 2 and we are in verse 6 uh, this morning and we will read uh, through the end of chapter 2. And so if you have uh, God's word, let us give attention to it now. Shall not all these take up their taunt against him? with scoffing and riddles for him, and say, Woe to him who heaps up what is not his own, for how long? And loads himself with pledges. Will not your debtors suddenly arise, and those who awake who will make you tremble? And then you will be spoiled for them. Because you have plundered many nations, all the remnant of the people shall plunder you for the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in them. Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house, who set his nest on high to be safe from the reach of harm. You have devised shame for your house by cutting off many peoples. You have fortified your life. For the stone will cry out from the wall and the beam from the woodwork respond. And woe to him who builds up a town with blood and founds a city on iniquity. Behold, is it not from the Lord of hosts that peoples label merely for fire and nations weary themselves for nothing? For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Woe to him who makes his neighbor drink. You pour out your wrath and make them drunk in order to gaze at their nakedness. You will have your fill of shame instead of glory. Drink yourself and show your uncircumcision. The cup in the Lord's right hand will come around to you and utter shame will come upon your glory. The violence done to Lebanon will overwhelm you. As will the destruction of the beasts that terrified them for the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in them. What profit is an idol when its maker has shaped it, a metal image, a teacher of lies? For its maker trusts in his own creation when he makes speechless idols. Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, awake, and to a silent stone, arise. Can this teach? Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver, and there is no breath at all in it. But the Lord is in his holy temple, and all the earth keeps silence before him. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. This is God's word. It's without error in any part. It's given for our good and for his glory. Let us pray. Grace, Heavenly Father, we ask now that you uh, would use your word this morning. Use it to confront us in our sin. That we might know even greater our need for a Savior. Use it to encourage us and equip us as you remind us of, of who you are and of your promises to your people. Would your spirit be active and moving this morning in our hearts, renewing our hearts and minds that we may seek after you the things of your kingdom and the righteousness of Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. You can uh, be seated. And um, we're going to continue this morning uh, in the book 
of Habakkuk. And uh, I get my notes out here. Got a little lost. I got lost in the first service. We, we had the confession of faith and Mike finished it. And I was like, oh, I think I'm supposed to be up there right now. And he had to, like, he had to do like the eyebrow raise as he stared at me, um, reminding me like, yeah, you're supposed to be up here right now. So we, got, we, we did better this time. Uh, this is your first week with us. This is our third week in the book of Habakkuk. And so just to kind of give you a, a little bit of um, the background of, of the book, it's a book that's centered around Habakkuk's complaints. And his complaints are centered on uh, two things. First, the, the injustice and the corruption and the violence and the sin of, of the leadership in Judah. And so he comes to God and, and he says things that we would say. God, why are you not doing something about all of this? And God responds and says, Habakkuk, I am doing something. Right now I'm doing something. I'm raising up the Babylonians to come as judgment on you and on Judah. And of course, we, we, we talked about, so how, how do we walk faithfully in the world we inhabit when things go from bad to worse? And it's that we remember that God is sovereign, that he's in control, even when those things go from bad to worse. And then Habakkuk responds to him and is like, really? Like, that's your answer? I don't like it very much. He says, how can you, a God with pure eyes, look at evil? How can you use the wicked man to swallow up the more righteous one? And we looked last week at, at the, the, the practical things that Habakkuk does that he might still walk in faith amidst these answers from God. That we remind ourselves of, of who God is and the promises of, of His Word. And that because of who He is, we wait and we watch for the return of our King. And that we open His Word, His written Word, His declared Word, given to us that we might be able to, to know the providences of God and how he is working out all things for the good of his people and our salvation. And then lastly, we rest in the fact that the word became flesh. That God has a plan to do something about the evil and the injustice in the world. And that he did it through Christ Jesus at the cross. So we turn this morning and we're, we're done with the questions of how long and, and, and why, which kind of riddled the first two weeks of this study. And, and we get to this chapter and, and God starts moving past the like, how long are you going to wait to the, the answers of this is what I'm going to do. And it comes as, as chapter uh, 2 verse 5 ends uh, where he, he says to, to God, Habakkuk saying, um, his greed is wide as she hole, like death he has never enough. He gathers for himself all nations and collects all people. And God says, right, but then there's going to be these taunts. That the people are going to sing at him, and they're the their woes, and you can see them. Uh, there's five woes proclaimed in this section of Habakkuk, and you can see I titled this sermon from woe to woe. They're two different spellings. I feel like I'm like a surfer dude right now, like I were just shredding the gnar, woe. But but that's what happens. He proclaims woe, and it should elicit a response from us as we look at this of woe. And so let's see what he proclaims against the Babylonians, against the corruption in Judah, and against, in my opinion, the corruption and the evil and the sin that we see in the world around us and in ourselves. He uh, proclaims woe, God says woe, to, to, to three distinct categories. Woe to those who abuse people. Woe to those who abuse creation. And woe to those who worship idols. 
Woe to those who abuse people. He, he spells out for us three ways in particular that, that the Babylonians have been abusing people and the Judahites have been abusing people. And that we still see today people being abused by these same vices. Verse 6, he says, Woe to him who heaps up what is not his own. Woe to him who, who robs and extorts. Woe to him who fills his bank account. Woe to him who steals the treasure. Woe to him who, who, who fills his palace with the plunder of the nations that doesn't belong to him. Woe to him who gets rich by stealing. We're not that far removed from Bernie Madoff. You, you probably at least recognize the name. A man who stole $68 like billion over decades from thousands and thousands of people. Woe to him who gets rich by stealing. It's something that still happens. Robbery and extortion. And then verse 6 finishes with, and loads himself with pledges. This word pledges here, we, we've, we've got to realize is a pretty wide lexical range in the Hebrew. And we choose pledges, and that means loans. But it also happens when Babylon comes in and destroys your nation. And they take all of your gold and all of your treasure and they take it back to to Babylon. But then they look at your neighbors and say, you see what we did to them? If you don't give us your lunch money, it's going to happen to you too. Right? I mean, they took a page right out of the Sopranos, right out of the mob. You know, we're going to firebomb this one store and go to everybody else on the block and say, you you need us to protect you now, so you've got to pay us. Or it's going to happen to you as well. And that's what would happen. They, they, would, they would lend out money when you couldn't afford it and, and, in hopes that you were going to pay it back at exorbitant interest rates. And then when you couldn't pay it back, they would just move in and take everything else that you had left. And they'd move on to your neighbor after that. And it just repeated itself. This vassal kingdoms that would say, well, don't, don't kill us. Here's our money. And then at some point, you just run out. You can't afford the tax any longer. This still happens, right? We, we, we still have the, the practice of predatory loans. We don't have any payday advance places, you know, here when we look at the Turnpike in our, our, our area. But you don't have to drive that many miles to find places that will give you a payday loan. They'll give you a cash advance on your paycheck. You know, they, they might charge you 25, 30% on it. And then where do they happen to always be? In communities of poverty and destitution. Because they're predatory. They're taking advantage of people. So it's not just woe to Babylon. It's not just woe to Judah where, where these same things were happening. It's a woe over us. The world we live in. It's not just woe to those who abuse people for financial gain. It's woes who, who, a woe to those who uh, treat people unjustly, abuse people for ambition. Verse 9, woe to him who gets evil gain for his house uh, to set his nest on high and to be safe from the reach of harm. What does every king want? What does every empire want for it to last forever? They want the dynasty to be unending. And so in Babylon, you didn't have to worry just about being a nation they were against. You had to be worried about being somebody the king might see as a threat. Because he was trying to protect his line, his dynasty, that that his son and his grandson and his great-grandson and on and on and on would rule the empire. So he treated people unjustly. He raised himself up thinking he was out of harm's reach. We stand on the shoulders of people all the time to better ourselves and our families. 
We, we, are, we are quick to say, look at them, not me, when it comes to somebody who screwed up at work. To pass the blame that we might look better. That's treating someone un, unjustly for our own selfish ambition. And he goes on and says, Woe to him who builds a town with blood and founds a city on iniquity. Woe, woe, woe who takes advantage of the labor of people to build your cities and your, your homes. And I mean, we, 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 Just in modern history, we can begin to name the names of people who use terror and bloodshed to remain in power and to build their, their kingdoms, their, their empires. Hitler, Mussolini, Stalin, Pol Pot, King John Un. It goes on and on and on. Our own nation's dark history of chattel slavery. It's a woe to those who treat people unjustly for their own ambition and their own gain. We should be willing to look at the men who do this even today and call them evil and name it for what it is. Right, we've been having this argument in the last few weeks in our own nation. Whether it was a wise decision or not to kill the Iranian general is yet to be seen. But he was an evil man. Well, let's not mask that. We should call evil, evil. It's not just those who seek financial gain or treat those unjustly for selfish ambition. It's, it's those who, who abuse people and mistreat them for sexual satisfaction. Verse 15, Woe to him who makes his neighbors drink. You pour out your wrath and make them drunk in order to gaze at their nakedness. How relevant is God's Word? How relevant is God's Word? I mean, the, 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 the trial of Harvey Weinstein and Jeffrey Epstein, who's you know, no longer with us, didn't kill himself. The Me Too movement. That's what this is. It wasn't just Babylon. It wasn't just Judah. It's right here in our own country, in our own backyard. It's not just when, when, when men use their power and their authority and the access they might have to an industry to abuse. It's when you decide at night when you think no one else is around to open that webpage to look at pornography. When we make the joke of what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. This is a woe that, that for us, as we look at the world around us, should scream to us that, that our culture, our world is full of the same brokenness and sin that Judah and Babylon had. It's not just those who abuse people, it's those who abuse creation. Babylon in verse 17 of chapter 2, Habakkuk writes, it's revealed to by the Lord. The violence done to Lebanon will overwhelm you, as will the destruction of the beasts that terrified them. Archaeologists and historians have, have, have surmised that when, when Babylon came through that area, that they just leveled it indiscriminately. It didn't matter if the tree, they needed it or not, they just knocked it over. You've heard the, the cedars of, of Lebanon, trees that were large and, and lush and huge like what we see on the West Coast and the Redwoods and the Sequoias, decimated for no reason. That, that they killed the beast of the field and the beast of the wild without thought 
for sport. If you were here last week, you heard me talk about taking my father hunting. I got asked after the first service, how many more illustrations am I going to have out of this hunting trip? I promise many more. (laughs) Many more. But it's not so much this trip. It's just the fact that's what I grew up with. It's part of the tradition that I grew up in. It's part of what I think marks me off as a Virginian. My love for God's creation, to be outdoors and the beauty that he gives us, but also to, to enjoy the bounty of the table that he provides. But there's one thing that makes my blood boil when it comes to hunting. And, and every once in a while it happens, we'll, we'll show up at the club and somebody will have brought a visitor and they are, they are dead set on finding the biggest antlered deer they can find. And, and God blesses them and they, and they, they get a deer and, and they have no interest in the meat. All they wanted was a trophy for their wall. Sport hunting is not caring for God's creation. In Genesis, he gives us the task of having dominion, of caring for his creation. We as, as Christians should be some of the staunchest defenders of the environment, of conservation, of care. doesn't mean we do it at the expense of people or the things that we need or, or, or don't use the resources that are provided, but it means we care about where our food comes from. It means we, we, we care about whether that, that forest needs to be cleared for farmland. God shows us his cares. We finished Jonah the last time I preached through one with what? Did he, should he not care for Nineveh and all of the people in the city and all the cattle, all the animals? He himself shows a care for creation and the animals. And we, we, we often use the beauty of creation in our hymns to talk about the glory of God. Woe to him who abuses God's creation. And then woe to him who worships idols. Verses 18 and 19. What profit is an idol when its maker has shaped it, a metal image, a teacher of lies? For its maker's trust in his own creation when he makes speechless idols. Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, awake, to a silent stone, arise. Can this teach? Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver and there is no breath at all in it. What's being emphasized here by Habakkuk? What's being emphasized is the insanity of worshiping things that we create. The insanity of worshiping the things that we've built with our hands or our work. And we do this, right? We'll, we'll, we'll build a house. It's our dream house. It's the house we've always wanted. It's got the beautiful lawn out front. It's immaculate and the flower beds are perfect and, and inside it's spotless. And then we spend hours upon hours making sure the grass stays luscious and green and weed-free. We spend hours on our knees picking the weeds out of the flower beds. Hours vacuuming and mopping and dusting. Endlessly. And then we go away for a week a vacation and we come back and the flower beds are overrun with weeds. Crabgrass and nuts edge have made their way into the lawn. The house is dirty and dusty. It's insanity. And it's not just houses, it's cars. It's careers. We, we pour ourselves into our work to climb, to climb the corporate ladder, to, to, to make a, a better life for our families. At what cost? How many nights do we spend with our head on a hotel pillow and not our own? How many updates do we have to get through a text message of our kids' games without able to be there? 
Idols cost us things. They don't give us life. They demand life. And they continue to take. The word here used for speechless idols is a word that sounds eerily similar in the Hebrew to the word that's often used in the Old Testament for God, Elohim. When he names speechless idols, he says Elihim. Just a little, one, one character and one vowel point different. Because we create idols in the hopes that they're going to be like God or something close, but they fail miserably because there's no life in them. There are no words that come from them. They actually just rob us of life. It's not just that they're false, that they fail. It's that they're actually a hindrance to true worship. The idols in your life are a hindrance to your worship of God. Picture this. You, you, uh, you decide to make your family the most amazing meal possible. You, you, you shop for the perfect beef tenderloin. You're going to make beef wellington. It's going to be amazing. You got the carrots roasted and the asparagus is roasted. And you got one of those wedge salads with the homemade blue cheese dressing and the bacon bits on top. And for dessert, you're going to have creme brulee. You even got like one of those torches to make the top, you know, crispy and crunchy when you. And as it's all about to come out and, and, and be done and plated up beautifully, you call everybody into the den and you give them each 10 candy bars. And you say, you got to finish those before dinner. What's going to happen when you get to the table and you serve them this meal that's exquisite and wonderful? There's three things that are come out of it. One, probably more than one of your family is going to get sick before you ever get to the dinner table. <clears throat> the second thing is going to happen is if they make it to the dinner table, they're going to say, I, I'm, t- I'm too full. I got too much candy. The third thing that, that, that might happen is that they cut off a few bites and they take a few pieces out of duty and respect and obligation. But no one is going to enjoy that meal. It's exactly what idols do to our hearts. We fill our lives with idols. And then we show up to worship God and we've got nothing left to give. We've either made ourselves sick chasing idols so we don't even show up. Or or, or we get here and, and, and we don't have anything to give. Or what little we do have to give is out of duty and obligation. There's no joy and there's no life. There's no enjoyment of it. See, it's not just insanity to worship them. They, they actually hinder us from true worship. It's not just that God says, whoa. It's that he says a few other things that should make us go, whoa. One is his response to all these woes. He, he proclaims these woes, which are a declaration that something's not right. Right? A woe is that something's troubling. But they're also attached to those woes, judgment. If you, if you look from the very beginning, it's woe to him who heaps up what is not his own for how long and loads himself with pledges. In verses 7, verses 8, the judgment. Woe, this is troubling, but here is my judgment. Will not your debtors suddenly arise and those awake who will make you tremble? And then you will be spoiled for them because you have plundered many nations and all the remnants of the peoples shall plunder you. The stone will cry out from the wall the beam from the woodwork respond by trying to raise up your house in, in, in security and protection and your ambition. You've actually brought shame for your house and forfeited your life. To him who builds the town of iniquity, behold, it's, it's not from the Lord of hosts that these peoples labor merely for fire. They grow weary for nothing. It's all for naught. 
You will have your fill of shame instead of glory. Drink yourself and show your, circum- your uncircumcision. The cup in the Lord's right hand will come around to you and utter shame will come upon your glory. Woe to those woes. You know, Habakkuk has been crying out, God, what are you going to do? God, where's your justice? And God says, I see it. I declare that it's wrong. And here's the judgment that will be upon them. And this should give us a woe, a a, a pause on two, two levels. One, that God's justice is swift. I mean, do you see that it's a sudden thing that happens at the very beginning there, right? That they will suddenly arise and overtake you. God's justice is swift. And it is sure and it is true. But not just that, that when we read these woes, we should probably tremble a little bit ourselves. We've all abused people, mistreated them for our own gain, been unjust in ways for our own ambition. We've all, at some point, mistreated someone sexually, whether either it's just lusting after them. We've mistreated his creation. And we all definitely have the idols in our lives. So God proclaims woe. And there's judgment. And it should make us say, whoa. This is real. But he also gives to Habakkuk two verses that stand out. They're a little bit different than all the other ones. The first is the very end. Verse 20, but the Lord is in his holy temple. Let the earth keep silence before him. The Lord is in his holy temple. Let the earth keep silence before him. These are words that are echoing the psalmist. Psalm 11. The, uh, the psalmist writes, if I can turn there, not in Deuteronomy. The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes see. His eyelids test the children of man. The Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. God is in control. And he's been reminding us of this time and time again in the book of Habakkuk. And now he says, look, I am in my temple. I am ruling. And there's that that little part where his eyes see and his eyelids test men. My, My daughters and I play this game. It's a fun game. I pretend to be asleep and they come to wake me up. And uh, they, they do all kinds of things to wake me up. And, and then I wake up and I tickle them and we all squeal and then I go back to sleep. And we do it again and again. But, but sometimes I test them. I pretend to actually have fallen asleep. And so they're like, I mean, like pulling my hair and like banging my head into the floor. And I begin to wonder how long can I keep up this ruse? God, God does that at times for us. Like he, 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 just like with Habakkuk who's saying, why do you idly look? And God says, I'm not. I'm just, I'm, I'm just, testing you to, to, to walk in faith and trust me that I am in control. I am in my holy temple, Habakkuk. And then this, right in the middle of this passage of woes, in the middle of these songs, in the Hebrew, it's the, the right in the middle. It's verse 14 in, in, in my Bible, and most likely in your Bible, it's verse 14 as well. He takes a break from the woe to say this, to say, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. The language of Isaiah 11. Isaiah had prophesied, Isaiah 11, that from the stump of Jesse, a shoot 
will arise. A branch that will bear fruit will bring forth. And it goes on to to proclaim the glories of who Christ is. Who Christ is. And then all the things that will come because the glory of the Lord has been brought here. So he's he's saying to Habakkuk, he's saying to us that, that, that the one that has come and the one who's going to come again is going to usher in a time when there will be no more room in this world for suffering, for evil, for sin. There will be no more room in this world for violence. There will be no more room in this world for injustice. There will be no more room in this world for all the hard things, the sad things. Why? Because His glory will fill the earth. His glory will fill the earth. There's not room for other things when God's glory moves in. So He's saying there's going to be a day when people won't abuse anyone anymore. There's going to be a day when people don't abuse creation anymore. There's going to be a day when, when idols bow down to worship instead of us bowing down to them. Because every knee will bow and every tongue will confess when the glory of the Lord fills the earth. This is good news. That, that God is moving everything from woe to woe. He's moving every, everything from that proclamation that things are troubling and, and, and that justice is needed to justice has been served. And my glory now fills the earth. And we deserve his woe. We deserve that, that, that proclamation over us that things are troubling and that, that they're wrong and that there's sin and brokenness in us. We deserve that woe. But by his grace, our woe was poured out on someone else. Our woe was, was carried out on the cross in Christ. And so while we deserve it, we can stand in silence with our mouths aghast, declaring woe. One of my theological heroes is a man named J. Gresham Machen. He founded a little Presbyterian seminary in Philadelphia called Westminster Theological Seminary and then founded a, a denomination called uh, the Orthodox Presbyterian Church. Uh, and and he, he wrote extensively, and you can find his writings all over, and they're great. You should read them. But one thing that, that he wrote, and it was actually from a radio show, and it got, it got written down for him, he, was, he, he loved to climb mountains. And he wrote of, of one of his climbs, and he wrote this. One day in the summer of 1932, I stood on the summit of the Matterhorn in the Alps. Some people can stand there and see very little. Depreciating the Matterhorn is recognized part of modern books on mountain climbing. The great mountain, it is said, has been sadly spoiled. Why, you can even see sardine cans on those rocks that so tempted the ambition of climbers in Wimper's day. And Wimper wrote, wrote a book that was chronicling this. Machen says, well, I can say only that when I stood on the Matterhorn, I do not remember seeing a single can. Perhaps that was partly because of the unusual masses of fresh snow which were then on the mountain. But I think it is also due to the fact that unlike some people, I had eyes for something else. I saw the vastness of the Italian plain, which was like a symbol of infinity. I saw the snows of distant mountains. I saw the sweet green valleys far, far below at my feet. I saw the whole glories around of glittering peaks bathed in an earthly light. And as I see that glorious vision again before me now, I am thankful that from the bottom of my heart, that from the knee, from my mother's knee, I have known to whom all that glory is due. See what he's saying? 
that you can stand in a place and see two different things. Habakkuk is crying out to God. He's crying out to God. God, where are you at? God, why aren't you doing anything? There's evil, there's injustice, there's, there's people who are taking advantage of everyone else, and why aren't you doing something? All he sees around him are the sardine cans of life. And we can do the same. We, we, we can stand in life and look around us and see only the ugliness, only the brokenness, only, and we can despair. We can begin to believe the lies of the evil one that God is not strong enough to do something and God doesn't care to do something. Or we can, like Habakkuk, have our eyes lifted up to see the glories of God. To see Him in His holy temple and stand in silence before Him. To see His promises of justice. To see His promises of a Savior, of a Redeemer. And my prayer is that we are a people who see His glory. Who have had our eyes lifted up is what it takes to walk by faith in the world we inhabit is to see God's glory. To see His glory and to know His glory and to run after His glory. Let us pray. Most gracious Heavenly Father, we come to You this morning rejoicing at Your promises that are true Rejoicing that you are in control. We come this morning rejoicing that you are a God who says, Woe. That you acknowledge the sin and the evil, the violence. You acknowledge the troubling things of this world. That not only do you acknowledge them, that you move into them. And through Christ, you promise a day when your glory will fill the earth. And all of those things will pass away. We pray these things in his name. Amen.